Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Bai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast that looks at immersive storytelling, experiential design, and the future of spatial computing. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. So continuing on my series of looking at different experiences from Venice Immersive 2023, this is episode number 17 out of 35, and the second of three of looking at the context of enemies and war. So this piece is called Letters from Drancy by Darren Emerson, done in partnership with the Illinois Holocaust Museum, where they had a number of different survivors of the Holocaust, and they wanted to use virtual reality technologies to tell a number of stories of Holocaust survivors. And so this tells the story of Marion Deichmann, who was a young girl during World War II, who was with her mother. They escaped to Paris, France, and then with German-occupied France, her mother was actually taken away to a place called Drancy and then eventually sent off to Auschwitz to die in the Holocaust. And so she was sort of orphaned at this point and be taken in by some foster parents and then kind of follows her story throughout the course of these different beats and moments through this journey of losing her mother, but also eventually comes back to some letters that were written by her mother to her that were sent, but then kind of intercepted. And then eventually she came across them. And that's really the the emotional core of the piece of her being able to read and to share some of these last letters and last words from her mother. So this is primarily around the context of the war and the Holocaust. It's a lot of dimensions of family. It's also this experience of becoming a refugee and going into exile. And so the primary center of gravity of this experience is in very much in the emotional presence. It's very well written and really took me to an emotional place like no other experience this year. In fact, this is my favorite of all the different experiences that I saw over the course of Venice Immersive. And um, yeah, there's a lot of savvy use of environmental presence and embodied presence where it's mostly a 360 video, but there are some six off scenes where you're kind of embodied into these different moments of the narrative and get a sixed off type of experience, but get this real sense of embodiment of trying to put yourself into the shoes of what Marion had to go through, through different moments and beats in this experience. And also just a lot of really savvy use of techniques like projection mapping and using virtual reality as a canvas for being able to project these different aspects of either 2D images and yeah, just kind of fusing this very seamlessly together from a lot of innovations that Darren's previously done with Common Ground as well as In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats. Also, the final aspect of presence is different degrees of interactivity and active presence in these different moments where you're asked to kind of interact and engage with this experience as well. So that's what we're covering on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Darren happened on Sunday, September 3rd, 2023 at Venice Immersive in Venice, Italy. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. Hi, my name is Darren Emerson. I am a creator. I'm a director and a writer. I work for a company called East City Films and I make VR. Great. Maybe you could give a bit more context as to your background and your journey into VR. My background is that I studied in TV. Well, I studied film at university and then I started working for MTV. I worked for MTV for like six years, which was quite fun. A lot of music. So music is a big influence for me. And so... I set up my company in 2006, East City Films, with my friend Ashley Cowan, and we've been running it ever since then. Really starting making music videos and live music, but then I, I just had a, I had a calling back to making my own work films in the form of 360, that's when 360 came along. And I really focus on documentary or you know, creative nonfiction, I guess. 
and so I've been exploring that in the medium of firstly 360 but then sort of my work very much sort of kind of fuses 360 with real-time animation sort of kind of different forms that I'm interested in in terms of storytelling. Right. Yeah, maybe you could just uh, briefly recount some of the other projects that you've worked on ahead of uh, this piece that you're showing here, Letters from Jancy. Yeah, so the journey for me started in 2015 with a piece called Witness 367, which was for DocLab. And so that was a 360 piece about the 77 bombings. In 2016, I made a piece called Indefinite, which was about indefinite detention in the UK asylum system, which was part of a Sheffield DocFest Alternate Realities Commission. That was bought by the New York Times and they did a piece around it, so that was great. And then in 2019, with a scheme in the UK called Creative XR, I was commissioned to make Common Ground, which premiered at Tribeca in 2019 and toured around. That was about housing and the history of social housing in the UK, but also focusing on a, on a massive housing estate in London called the Ellsbury Estate. And really it was about regeneration and gentrification. And then in 2022, made In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats, which is still touring. It's going to be in Geneva next, then at Taiwan and Kaohsiung, and then it's in Denmark. It's all over the place. But it won the award at IFA Doc Lab most recently. And so that's been very, very successful. And just, I mean, literally just a month after I finished, wrapped on In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats, we started making letters from Drancy. And that is why I'm here today. Letters from Johnson has got its world premiere at Venice Immersive this year. Great. Yeah. And I've uh, had a chance to see In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats at Iva Doc Club and really loved it. And also saw Common Ground at Tribeca and uh, had a chance to record an interview that I haven't had a chance to publish yet. But, you know, I see that there is this progression from the 360 video into having more interactive embodied aspects. Uh, In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats have a lot of embodied aspects. And then I guess you're going back to 360 video here, but maybe using more spatial immersive motion capture techniques and whatnot, which we can get into here in a little bit. But maybe let's start from the top and give me a bit more context for how this project came about, Letters from Jancy, which I understand is the first of a trilogy. Yes. Well, it's So we were contacted by the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center in Chicago. And they're the second biggest Holocaust museum in the US. They were looking to work with people to make some VR for their museum. They'd already made a couple of films a couple of years ago, VR films, which they show in the museum and they have them on rotation. And they had three survivors of the Holocaust that they wanted to tell their stories. And they're slightly unusual stories in the sense of, I guess in the sense that they are lesser told stories of the Holocaust. They don't necessarily feature the sort of death camps. And so obviously that's all connected. So they wanted to kind of shine a light on those sorts of stories. And also obviously they work with survivors in the community in Illinois. And so they had these three ladies whose stories they wanted to tell. So my company, East City Films, were commissioned to make these, working in collaboration with the museum. There's three films. They've all been made. I've directed Letters from Drancy. And then we have two other directors, Charlotte Mickelberg, who has directed a piece called Escape to Shanghai. And then we've got Mary Matheson, who has directed Walk to Westerbork. And so they cover different areas. So Escape to Shanghai really tells the story of Doris Fogel and her mother who leave Germany just before the war and are refused entry on a ship with lots of people and they refused entry and they end up in Shanghai, China, 
And so that's a really sort of interesting story. And most people don't really know that that was a place that took in Jews. And obviously the Japanese invade and it becomes, you know, there's more of a ghetto there. But it's just eventually like the Americans liberate, obviously, China. And so that's that story. Walk to Westerbork is set in Amsterdam. And it's about the internment camp in Westerbork, which is somewhere where they held people before they were taken east to the death camps. And it's a story really about luck and on Rhodey's side and also like the the dedication of her grandfather to try and like free them from this by using any means necessary. And so and then there's Letters from Drancy, which is the piece that I was most drawn to. And it tells the story of Marion Deichmann and her mother Alice Deichmann, who are living in Luxembourg when the Nazis invade. They travel, well, they smuggle themselves into France, to Paris, in the back of a truck. They get an apartment in occupied Paris, and then eventually there's a knock on the door in the morning, and policemen come and take away Marion's mother, Alice. From that point onwards, Marion doesn't know what's happened to her mother, and she goes into hiding with the resistance, the French resistance, in Paris over a course of six to eight months, staying a couple of nights here and there on, on people's couches, and you know, but constantly being moved around until a social worker takes her to a family in Normandy. And this is the Parony family in Normandy, who have been declared by, as just for nations in terms of their historical role in protecting Marion. The Parony family run a cafe in this town called Saint-Hilaire, and... It turns out that the father is part of the resistance. He's in that network. He fought in the First World War. And so they take her in and really, like, she becomes part of their family until D-Day happens, where they have to leave the town. When D-Day happened, Marion describes how the Americans and the British dropped leaflets all over the town saying, you have to leave, we're going to completely bomb this place out before they kind of invade. And so she goes there, and that's where she experiences D-Day. And after that, eventually she returns to Paris in search of her mother. And that's when we find out that eventually that her mother was taken to Drancy, which is a suburb of Paris. But in Drancy, there is a tenement housing, essentially, like social housing. It reminded me a little bit of Common Ground, actually. And that's where they were holding Jewish prisoners before they were taken to Auschwitz. And we find out that Marion's mother was taken directly to Auschwitz and was killed on arrival. So the story kind of finishes there in terms of the narrative flow of what's happening, but really it finishes with Marion more philosophically talking about her life, how she feels... The first moment I met Marion, it was so her connection to her mother, who she hasn't seen obviously since, you know, 80 years ago, was so present. It was like she was in the room with us. And I just knew that this was kind of like such a powerful story and that Marion was going to be really good at telling it and that we could really work together to, I guess, just articulate it in this medium. Yeah, as you were recounting each of the beats of the story, I had images that were from the film and I think that's the thing that really was striking to me not only is this just like on the face of it just an amazing story all the different ways that her life kind of weaves in between the personal becoming the political where you get a slice of the larger collective actions that are happening but through her own first person perspective and her memories of her mother getting taken away and so using a lot of different ways of like 
you know, you just told me the story, but in the piece you showed me the story in a way where I felt like this piece was doing an amazing job of both showing and telling more of the uh, mimetic representational aspects, but the diegetic more narrative recounting of her telling the story. And yeah, and, and as she ends up in Drancy, she's also getting letters that were sent by her mother, but intercepted, but eventually she comes upon them. So maybe you could explain a little bit more context of the letters from Drancy, the title of the piece, and where that comes in at the end. Well, yeah. So when she returns to Paris and finds out that her mother's taken to Drancy, they eventually find these letters. There were two letters, kind of written on postcards, really, that obviously were intercepted. You know, they were sent to the apartment that they had to flee to go into the resistance. But the lady who was their sort of landlady had kept them. So eventually they find these letters and in the piece she reads one of them to us, which is, you know, it's a very heartbreaking moment. We translated it and in the interview that we did with her, we got her to read them. And what we do in letters is we project it onto the side of the buildings in Drancy. So you're present in the space that they were written. And it's heartbreaking, you know. It's hard for Marion to read. It's just the little things that affect you. It's the pet name, you know, like she calls her her little Schnoofy. It's the name for Marion as a daughter, and, and it's, it's hard, you know. But, you know, it's called Letters from Drancy, not only because of those letters, but because when we were in Paris, we saw thousands of letters that were written by lots of people to their loved ones from that place. So, you know, the title of the piece is really trying to pay tribute to the fact that this is one story. And I think like all Holocaust pieces, you're showing one story of something that happened to so many millions of people, so many extended families. It's sort of overwhelming. And I think my approach to this piece was, I think at first when I was at the museum, walking around, hearing stuff, I felt overwhelmed, actually, in terms of storytelling sense. You get quite caught up in... The extended families, you know, because everyone's important. It's like sitting with an elderly relative and they're showing you a picture book and they're saying, okay, this is your auntie and she was married to him. And and when you're sitting with a Holocaust survivor and they're showing you all these pictures, all of these people have been murdered. And so you feel a responsibility is just like, you know, I need to tell the story of Marion's uncle. I need to tell the story of, you know, Marion's grandmother and all these kind of different things. But I quite quickly felt that to tell this successfully in this medium, I had to really kind of narrow the focus to really be that central relationship between the mother and the daughter, which is the kind of emotional heartbeat of the film. As you mentioned, you're aware of all these kind of things happening around them, like social workers, resistance, you know, the influence of the Germans and the Vichy government, and then the Americans coming in to liberate, and all these things are happening around essentially a child. I mean, we're talking about a nine- 10-year-old child. And so I wanted it to feel like partly a child's recollection. You know, these are memories from a long time ago. And so there are sort of kind of almost like two perspectives that you inhabit. You inhabit the perspective of accompanying Marion back to some of these places. And then you are in the perspective of either witnessing or being almost sitting in Marion's shoes in certain aspects, like in the back of the truck when you're being smuggled across and you're hearing what's happening. So, yeah, it was quite challenging in in many respects to kind of find the story in a way is so obvious in terms of its beats. You know, it's like, hey, we we travel here, there's a journey, there's a resolution. But trying to focus it emotionally was the more challenging element of it, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. That that moment when she's reading the letter just really cracked me as I was um, watching the piece. And as I was watching it, I really appreciated how you were visually telling the story as well as telling me the story. And the way that, you know, from Common Ground, you were using a lot of projection mapped techniques onto buildings. And in this piece, Letters from Jancy, you were also a lot of times using either a CGI overlay of something on top of the spatial context, or I don't know if you were doing actually any in situ projection onto buildings and recording. It looked like more digitally added afterwards, but actually being situated in those locations and then adding these layers of story on top of it, it's like this, as augmented reality comes up online, you can think about these different locations and then the history and stories that are connected to those locations. But in VR, you're able to use 360 video to start to overlay some of those aspects of that story on top of it. And I felt like you had really taken me on a journey of Marianne's life and how her mother was taken away from her. And those letters are kind of like the closing of the loop of that disconnect and basically like the last words that she hears from her. So yeah, I was deeply, deeply moved by this piece and really appreciated how you were able to really take me on this spatial journey of this story. Like I said, you told us the story just now, but it's a whole other experience to actually go to these locations where things happened. And as she's talking about things, almost creating these embodied rituals of her at the monuments or trying to visually represent symbolically what's being told in the story with different ways of visually representing it. Yeah, I mean, we did, I mean, obviously, you know, we projected the interview onto the buildings. And the reason I do that often in like a film, like a 69 interview, because it's the detail of the shot, being able to really see the face and the emotion. Sometimes I feel that that's better than standing somebody in a 360 shot and asking them to be interviewed or like to do something. Mainly because you have to be standing really in a 360 shot. I mean, you can be sitting, but it's, it's a little bit clunky. You know, it doesn't feel very natural. So to be able to project something that has a little bit more detail, fidelity onto those buildings, it works for me a lot better. But obviously, like, Marion was in Drancy with us. So there's a shot where she's by a sort of kind of train cattle cart, which was used to possibly take her own mother, uh, you know, east. And that was the first time that she'd been to Drancy. And so she was actually having a bit of a, you know, it was quite a hard, that was the hardest moment in the shoot, for sure. But I tried to sort of represent, I always had this idea that I wanted to show her standing with her back to us, isolated in lots of different positions, in places, in locations that we were, so on the beach, in Drancy, in front of the Eiffel Tower, and all these kind of places, to represent that this is a woman moving through these different places, but also she's on her own she's been separated from her mother so who was the only real sort of you know the guardian that she was with her parents she, her father wasn't really in the picture so yeah so it was kind of finding different ways of telling it I mean the animations as well were kind of really key of like telling these stories that I always you know the moment where her mother's taken away in this animation I always knew that the certain style that I wanted to do it in that would have a lot of negative space. It was a very ethereal, it felt like it could dissipate, that it was fragments of a memory that was so long ago, but also kind of seared into her consciousness that she's never going to forget it. But what we see and what we remember are, are those fragments that will stay there. You know, the mother putting stuff into a suitcase, the, the emotion of it, really. And then I, I made a decision in that animation for the mother to turn into a bird 
and fly off. And then at the end, when it kind of goes back into animation, you see kind of birds, there's kind of like a theme there, which was really because when I first spoke to Marion, Marion is not, I mean, she's from a Jewish family, but she's not religious. She believes in science. She believes in nature. You know, that's her outlook on life. You know, that we're all homo sapiens and, you know, we're animals, essentially. And I just felt that there was a connection between nature and the idea of her mother and the idea of a child seeing her mother walk through a door and never seeing her again, and that she would then carry her mother with her all through her life, but she would see representations of her in the leaves and the trees, in the, you know, and that's why Normandy is so sort of green, and like, you know, we wanted to kind of do lots of metaphors with that, like the birds and everything that's around us. So, you know, that moment at the end where she's on the beach in Normandy, which is where she had been with the Parany family, and it's by Mont Saint-Michel, is a really sort of poignant moment for me. That's the bit that gets to me right at the very end, you know, even now when I'm watching it back. There's a scene where Marion's in a stairwell leading up to the apartment where she's pointing and saying, this is the last time I saw my mother before she was taken away. And then does the animation sequence of her memories of her, like, losing her mother, does that come before or after that moment? Just after that. Just after that. So she's. So we go back to this place called, it's 12 Rue Caffarelli in Paris. And this is the apartment that her and her mother were in. We're outside the actual apartment. We didn't go inside the apartment, mainly because actually the stairwell looks exactly the same as it did, you know, in the war. It hasn't changed very much because there's not much to change, really. But looking inside the apartment, it looks complete, you know, it kind of, in a way, it's so, like, modern and full of, like, stuff. You know, we were struggling to actually find out who lived there and if we could get permission to go in. So we decided to kind of not go in there and then just represent it, the idea in, in animation, which was more effective. I felt like, you know, if we go into, like, a modern-day apartment that feels very, very different, that it kind of will remove you from that, that reality that we're trying to build, you know if there's a DAB radio and some TV and you know we didn't feel like we could go in there and just totally strip out this person's like life to shoot there so um so yeah that's the reason you're in the stairwell and it was also I, I Marion didn't have any desire to go in there you know she hadn't been in that place since the day after her mother was taken away and so you know we were having to be sort of kind of mindful we had a duty of care whilst we were there, obviously somebody from the museum was there, to try and tell the story and try and get what we needed. And just like the moment in Drancy, the moment in the stairwell was challenging in a sense of like, okay, we're here, we're somewhere very significant that she hasn't been for a long time. In some cases, I think Drancy was more upsetting because of the cattle car that they used, the carriage that's on display there. Whereas the apartment... It feels so everyday, almost mundane. You know, it's one of those things that maybe you build up in your mind and then it's like, oh, okay, it's just a hallway, you know. But that's why I think the animation was sort of significant. And, you know, I use an animator based in Denmark who I've used for In Pursuit of Repetitive Beats, Common Ground. And I'm able to write a script for him and how I want things to move. And, and then he did an animatic that the museum really loved and I really loved and it was kind of exactly how I kind of imagined the movement of the camera within that negative space which works quite well and then we did some motion capture we did a motion capture session day and then used that motion capture to then animate on top of and actually it's my daughter 
playing Marion. So whenever I see that animation, I kind of see also my own daughter, which is of a similar age as to Marion there. So that's quite quite affecting for me, even you know watching it. Yeah, there's another piece here called Emperor, which is all about memories and fading memories, and it's got this black and white, lots of negative space with things being painted in and out. But and this is like more of a Bansky graffiti where you have the black and white outline as you animate it. There's a video that you did for the Biennale that has a little bit more of the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like it was an animator who was taking the data. Like what, what was he using? Was he just hand drawing it on top of the points or taking the data and adding like a style transfer thing on top of? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was that. It was kind of like a shader, really, that we developed and worked on. You know, it wasn't hand drawn, although originally when I was conceiving that, like all of my references were hand drawn animation references. But the animator felt that his route to getting something like that was to use motion capture data and then use 3D models and then use shading and different effects on that. So he worked quite a long time. We looked at doing it in real time as well. So we looked at loads of different like tests of animation and how we might do that scene before I settled on doing it actually as a freed off scene instead of a real time scene. We almost looked at fusing the two a little bit actually to add some parallax and some changes to a freed off animation. But in the end, we just didn't go that route. So yeah, so that's how it happened in the end. And but as I said, like, I work with, with that guy all the time. I mean, he did the scene in Pursuit of Repetitive Beats where you're going through the flyers. And so there's a good synergy now between sort of what I'm trying to communicate and what we end up getting. So, yeah, it was a good relationship. And I have some memories of some scenes, and I actually can't remember whether or not they were CG sixed off or whether it was all 360 video. Like, there's a scene where you're in a truck and another scene when you're seeing the flyers come down. So in those scenes, was that real-time CG sixed off or was it all 360 video? I, I'm having a hard time remembering. In a way, I'm pleased in a way because like, I like to mix them, but I don't want to sort of go, you know, I want you to not really know if you're in sixed off or freed off because sometimes I feel like, you know, going from sixed off into freed off, you have to make that seamless. You know, we did it in beats a lot and we're doing it here. So those scenes are sixed off, real-time scenes when you're in the truck. And also when you're in the farmyard barn where the letters are dropping. The thing is, one of the prerequisites of making this was that it had to be seated for the museum, for the final exhibition. They didn't want controllers because they didn't want to have to onboard people every day and explain you know, controls to what may be mostly a, maybe an older generation of museum visitor. So we had to kind of take those things into consideration when we were making it. But yeah, they're real-time scenes. There's also a, a real-time scene towards the beginning where it's kind of like the history you're in a what is essentially a replica of the house that Marion lived in in Luxembourg but it's packed up because they're having to leave and what's not really mentioned in the film is they did actually pack up all their stuff and they left it with this lady who who actually went when they returned like when she returned years later had kept all her stuff which is unusual because often Jewish people would hand their stuff to neighbours and say, can you look after it? And it would get sold and stuff. But yeah, so that was kind of a nod to this house. And there's a portrait in there. There's, there's stuff under dust sheets and stuff. And we project onto those as uh, sort of archive and stuff like that, which in a way is like kind of telling the beginning bits of the story, like who she is, her family, where they come from, and kind of sets the scene essentially for the first big moment, which is getting into the truck and smuggling themselves into Paris. So that was also a real-time scene. 
Yeah, and is everything in Quest Space or is this a PC VR with a link cable? This is Vive Pro. It needs a 480 graphics card. I think minimum is like 380, but also again, because the museum had already made a couple of pieces that were using the Vive Pro. So, you know, in terms of their investment already into tower PCs and the kit, that was kind of one of the things that we had to do. What we did end up doing was upgrading all their computers for the latest graphics cards, figuring out if they would run, you know, how hot they would run. And we had to test all of that because, you know, they had already built these PCs. So yeah, it's a Vive Pro experience, but we have made 360 versions of them for the Quest. And that's, I guess, for greater distribution. But for the museum, it's mainly to take it out to schools. You know, you can take a bunch of crests out of schools. You can't, like, set up loads of Vive Pros. It's not practical. So, you know, the fidelity in the Vive Pro is great. But obviously, you know, the Quest is so much more portable. So, you know, that's something that we knew we were going to do. We also made, obviously, like, making ours, orientation films. We did a lot of stuff, so a lot of material that can be used in the museum setting as well as contextual and sonography and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, uh, uh, there are 43 total projects here, and I was able to see 14 before I came, 14 on the first day I was here, and then 15. And so it was basically like 43 projects very quickly. So my memory of them, I remember these moments, but some of the details I forget. So, But the thing that I really take away from Letters from Drancy is just the emotions that I felt from where you were able to take me in this story, especially through to the end, just how everything combined together, all these different techniques, all the... 360 video, all the scenes, all of the sixed off moments that you had, as well as the projection mapped and yeah, just that reading a letter. But the thing that I also remembered was sitting in the truck, like really creating this tension of like, am I going to be discovered or not? Yeah, I thought that was also really effective of that moment. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit, because that seems like a, a scene where you can imagine that you're trying to smuggle yourself out to another country and then you get stopped by the police and you have an occluded view of you don't see exactly what's happening. But so you're kind of in this space, like a lot of horror VR games will play on that, like hiding information. Jaws as a film is another piece that does that where you don't see the shark for a long time. So the threat that you're being faced with, you can't see and that not knowing it creates this tension and terror that I think actually works quite well of giving the viewer this embodied experience of this moment that she's talking about. So you get this larger arc of the story and you are then now all of a sudden you're embodying her as the character in that moment, whereas most of the time you're a ghost looking at it. But these other times of this sixth off, you're more embodying her in these different moments. Yeah, I mean, that was always a key scene, I think, for me. It's like she told me about that scene in the first meeting. And I was just like, wow, okay. Not to sound trite, but it felt very cinematic. I was kind of excited about like doing that. And so, you know, we researched what sort of truck it would be. She describes that she was hiding under sacks. And so we've got this kind of like cargo, kind of a commercial goods truck, I guess, from the era. But it was a very sound driven moment, really. So the sound was really about, you know, like the engine starting, moving, you feel the movement and then it stops and you're like, oh, okay. And then the sound of like kind of distance of dogs and like, you know, and there's a conversation in German that's happening between the driver, you know, where he's asking like, what have you got in the back and all this kind of stuff. And so, you, and it's all kind of played out and, you know, then he starts searching for her with a flashlight and this is actually happening. And it comes very, very close to you. You're able, because of the sixth off, even in a seated 
chair you're able to feel like you can move and just crunch up a little bit and try and avoid this torchlight which is for me is that kind of a really nice moment of interactivity where you feel really present in that once we'd built the truck what we did was in the vive we had a vive controller as the torch and i walked around the 3d model and we recorded myself as the officer like shining the torch into the model you know we did it a few times you know so i'm kind of timing it and trying to act you know, often it's crashing because, you know, it's tech that's just like crashes all the time. But but we got it, you know, so and and just to try to see how just to give it a kind of arc and a, and a feel, a naturalistic kind of feel of where the torch is going. You know, the torchlight works really nicely with all the stuff that's in there, you know, the reflections and coming through the slats, you know, so it's quite cool. And actually on the floor in front of you, which is from the previous scene, we were in that and it's a transition, it stays with the transition, is the suitcase and the doll that Marion took with her. And it kind of passes, the light passes there, and it almost moves. And you think, oh, God, we're going to get discovered. But, yeah, no, I'm glad you enjoyed that scene. It was a fun one, actually, to do, for sure. Yeah, I definitely remember the lights a little bit more than the sounds, trying to avoid the lights. But there's also another really, like, 360 video cinematic scene where you're recreating different moments from her dream where you have this prismatic arrangement of mirrors and a triangle that creates this infinite repetition of this Nazi soldier running towards her. So yeah, maybe you could talk about one of the first scenes that you had like recreating this dream. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we don't explain necessarily it's a dream. Hopefully it's obvious that it's kind of a dream sequence. Although, you know, we had discussions with the museum. It was like, oh, do we need to say it? And I, I was like, I don't want to say it's a dream because you're looking at it. You're in oh, it. I was listening to the video that you did where you said it was a dream. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it comes from, Marion's written a book about her experiences. It's a very detailed book. And one of the things when I was flying home from Chicago, I was reading the book on the plane. And she talks about these recurring nightmares that she had. And they're very evocative visually. One of them is she describes waking up feeling that she's in a nightdress, she's in a room, a mirrored room, that she can't hide from a Nazi officer. And she's trying to get away and she can't, she catches her nightdress on a car or something like that. It's kind of like a crazy like dream. And that really comes from the fear that they had in Paris. Like, you know, they would get on the metro, but then as they're coming out of the metro, they would see boots at the top of the stairs and they would go oh we'll go back we'll get back on the train so there's this constant fear living in occupied Paris that you're going to run into a Nazi soldier a German soldier who's going to ask you like who you are where your paper and you're going to get you know and that's it so it's about that really so we try to recreate this dream and so we work with a set designer to build literally build a mirror prism and then we were like, we'll figure out how to shoot 360 in a, in a mirror prism, which was really, really difficult, obviously. But we sealed it completely and we cut a hole so that we could put the lens in. And we we're using, I think, a GH5 camera and doing it in slow motion. And, you know, it took the whole day to shoot, actually. And it worked, although, you know, we tried lots of different things. I tried to fill it with, like, smoke and stuff like that, but then you could see all the mirror lines and stuff like that, which it looked kind of cool, but, like, it wasn't really what we were going for. And so eventually we got that. And I think, I mean, I have to admit, I was a slightly, I was slightly worried about it, actually. I was probably out of all of the scenes that we've done, that was the one that I was least confident about. It felt weird dressing somebody in a Nazi uniform, it always does. I mean, I wanted the Nazi to be young, like young soldier. It's not an officer, it's not like the SS or whatever. It's just some kid who's like 
in the army, you know, who you might encounter. And I wanted that representation because I felt like that would be somebody you might encounter in the street. In a way, that's a scarier prospect of like, it's the general population, it's 18 year olds, you know, it's not just like older officers or like people who are in the ESS. So that was what the casting kind of was about. But I think my reticence was slightly just like, is it too much? Is it too on the nose, you know? And we discussed it with the museum. And one of the things they came back with was that actually, you know, there isn't often a lot of representation in Holocaust films of the actual Nazis or the officers themselves. It's really told from the perspective of the survivor and what they went through, but you don't actually see the face. And so they felt it was actually important to see the face of hatred you know and so that made me feel slightly more at ease with it even though it was something I'd kind of like I wanted to do you know having shot it you know and I'm always somebody that I will try things like if we're going to make something a VR piece we're going to try things we're going to go out there and you know and that was one of those things but I'm always willing to like if we spent like a lot of money doing it I'm always if it doesn't feel right I'm going to can it I'm going to cut it and that's happened before with like interactive stuff that we were common ground you know we designed a whole thing where you could push open the door but it just didn't work the way I wanted it to and so in a way making these things you have to experiment but you have to also be willing to say maybe this doesn't work or this doesn't feel right tonally yeah so that was one that I was kind of worried about but I, I don't know what your reaction is to it but the museum were happy with it and I was like okay so but that, maybe that's just insecurity on my side as a creator, you know. No, I, think it, I think it works. Part of my experience of being here on the press day was that there's a lot of different technical glitches. So, like, the audio wasn't playing properly. So, there was, like, other things that, like, I had to have it restarted a number of signs. I think that's one of the first scenes that it starts with. So, Yeah, it is the first scene. I mean, I, I quite like, I mean, you'll know from Beats as well and Common Ground maybe, but I like to kind of open with something quite striking to go like, right, okay, I've got your attention and we're into the story straight away. I don't want to hang about, you know, so because I feel like the quicker I can get you into the story, get you immersed into this journey, the quicker you're going to forget you've got a, a massive HMT on your face. <laughs> yeah, so my, my memory of that scene is like having to watch it like three or four times to get the technology like working properly. Uh, right. And so it was like a little bit of like being a QA tester sometimes uh, being here at Venice the first days where everything's are still getting sorted out and the docents are getting and so yeah and like there's little glitches where the audio wasn't playing. So anyway they got it all sorted out and I was able to get it but it impresses on my memories. So yeah but I did think it is like very striking and alluring and I think it's I don't remember what happens immediately after that, but I guess the thing that I'm taking away overall is just like the whole arc of the story. And there's a moment when after Miriam, I believe this is after Miriam finds out that her mother has died. She's maybe read the letters and, but she's at this memorial where she's searching for the date and the name. And that was such a, a, a moving place just to have, the names of all the people representing there with the days and you think about the millions of people that died like maybe you could give a bit more context as to that specific memorial and you know if that's like representative of all of the names or if there was a specific people from Drancy or where was that memorial that she was at to find her mother's name that memorial is in Paris so it's the Jewish Museum in Paris there's a memorial there I believe it's all the names of all the Jews who were living in Paris and France that were murdered. So Alice Deichmann's name is there. 
It's a beautiful memorial, actually, and, and, but it's quite small. We filmed one in, in Amsterdam for another project, which is much larger, and there's a similar, like, lots of bricks with people's names in. The sequence there is, it's a moving shot sequence, so, so we're moving through, and she's talking about, really, this starts the beginning of her sort of kind of looking back and her philosophical sort of thinking around it. And she starts by saying, the inhumanity man has for its men. If you believe in absolutes, absolute good and absolute bad, then Auschwitz is the absolute bad. And when she's saying this, you're passing all of these names. It was before it opened. And I kind of arranged the shot so that as you pass through, one of the pillars of the walls kind of reveals her as she's laying a candle for her mother. So I wanted the shot to reveal her as she's kind of mid-doing it and standing up. So, yeah, it was a really powerful moment. And that scene then leads to the very last scene, which is very reflective. And, it, and you're suddenly you're on the beach and you're traveling in Normandy down a beach. And all the things that she says in that beach scene, you know, were from an interview. And it was at a moment, you know, the interview was long and it was kind of long-winded. And we went off into lots of different tangents. But I remember when I asked her to talk about those sorts of things, more philosophical, more about, like, how she feels about the whole thing in, in summary... She just nailed it, you know, it was just like, wow. So that bit was really easy to cut. And she says stuff like, it feels for her, it's just like yesterday, it's, it's so present. And that she has no hate, she doesn't hold on to hate. She has pity, disgust and pity for the Nazis, but she can't have hate. And that you have to look forward. And, you know, so it's all very, it's very soothing in a way. One of the best bits in that sequence is where she talks about, and this always gets me when I listen to it, and I, I remember why I put it in. She says, I think my mother would be proud of me. And, and, and you think, gosh, she's still, in, in some senses, she's still that little girl whose mother leaves her and says, you know, be good, Marion, be good, you know? And that stuck with me. But then the real human bit of it, after she says, I think my mother would be proud of me, and that's quite emotional, she says, well, most of the things I've done. And there's a little kind of sigh, you know, in that Marion is 90 years old and she's a Holocaust survivor and she was here yesterday, but she's not a deity. You know, she's just a human being. And this is the point. She has her flaws. She has her family. She's gone through a whole life after this that has, I don't know it, the ins and outs of it, but I'm sure it's had the same ups and downs that everyone else has had. And so it's important I think, in these Holocaust stories, to show that this is just human beings. This is mothers and daughters. They are flawed. They are good people, you know, and that's the nuance that I was looking for. It's not, this is a story about a Jewish family. This is just a story about a mother and a daughter. And so her outlook on life is remarkable and inspiring, and I think it was just a great way to close the piece, you know. Yeah, just really deeply moving as a story and the way that you were able to kind of really bring everything together and that there's certain aspects of her story that are very specific to that time and place of the Holocaust and being Jewish in that context. And there's also the more universal aspect of like losing a parent type of thing. You know, people may have had their parents die or taken away in some context. And so there's a way in which earlier when she has her mother taken away when she's still in Paris and she comes back and spends one more night in that place but then realizes she has to go somewhere and she's basically like in this liminal space of as I was watching it was just trying to imagine myself of like wow what 
what would that have been like for me to like have my parents taken away like that and be left to what to do? And so then she ends up in Normandy with this family. And yeah, maybe you can elaborate a little bit about what happens from once her mother gets taken away and how she ends up with this family and she gets taken in and, you know, there's some shots of her with what essentially becomes her sisters. And then also the different scenes that you have in Normandy. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right that I think about that as well. It's like your anchor point at nine years old is taken away. And what's interesting about it is the more complex emotion that she describes is a feeling of guilt. Why her, not me? Like she wanted to go with her mother. They wouldn't have known where her mother was going to and what her fate was to be. But, you know, you know, it's not good. But yeah, so she says, you know, why, I always think why her and not me? And that's a guilt that she lives with. That's kind of interesting, you know, it's a kind of a survivor guilt. Yeah, so she's taken into the resistance, and, and what she describes is basically that she's kind of moved around Paris, and that some people are nice to her, some people are less nice to her. She can't remember the names, it's so fleeting, but she sleeps on couches and, you know, on the floor. But she knows inherently that they're in danger, and the people that are taking her in for a night or two are in danger, because if it gets discovered, you know. And then there is, in the book, there's a social worker called Marth Laborde. Marth Laborde is the social worker, and it turns out the social worker is working really hard under the radar to get people into safe havens. And she's the one who takes Marion to Normandy, to the Parony family. And one of the things that we talked about with the museum right at the very beginning, one of the things that's most important to them is this idea of upstanders. People that in difficult circumstances, still make the right choice, the choice to stand up and do something. So the social worker is an example of that. The resistance are examples of that. And the Parani family are an example of people that didn't have to do what they did, but they did it anyway. And uh, the family, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Parani, have three children. They have Danielle, a son. They have Claudine who's also like their daughter. And Marion and Claudine are are about the same age. And what's striking about that, and what I feel emotional about that, and when Marion talks about Claudine, it's with a real love. Claudine died not that long ago, a few years ago. And when Marion talks about it, she tears up because this girl could have been awkward, could have been jealous. But she says she was none of it. She was like the nicest person I've ever met. They had a, like a sisterly love. And when she says sisterly love, you can hear the emotion in her voice. It makes me feel emotional that people could find each other like that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, in a way, it's a, st- a part of that story and why we spend some time there. And she goes to the graveyard of Mr. and Mrs. Parony and she lays some flowers. And she says that, you know, she found out after the war that if she had been an orphan, if she had no family, if they would have adopted her. And she just says, you know, he was such a lovely man. And it just reminds you, I guess, in the, um, in the face of incredible hatred that there is kindness and humanity should prevail, and it does eventually prevail. So, you know, and they are an example of people that, you know, did what they, what they needed to do, and, and, and she owes her life to them. You know? Has Marion had a chance to watch it yet? What was her reaction? Yeah, no, she has. She watched it at the museum, yeah, I mean, I think for Marion, being 90, I think it's more like, wow, this is like VR, you know, it's, it's more like, 
yeah, I mean, she feels, I mean, I think she loves it. I mean, it's a hard conversation to have. You know, I had that conversation. Like, so what did you think kind of a conversation? In a sense, I think she's more relieved and pleased. And she was elated that it was coming to Venice. Apparently, when the museum told her, she whooped with joy. And it's really because her mission is to tell this story and to keep her mother's name alive. So whether she loves the medium of VR and, you know, and all its affordances and what it does, you know, I, I don't know, really. We haven't really had an in-depth conversation about that. But I think she's certainly impressed with it. But it's obviously very, it's more meaningful for her that, in a sense, the museum chose to tell her story and all this effort went into doing it. You know, and we had a great, I mean, I said this at the panel yesterday with Marion. We filmed in Normandy and in France for a week with Marion. And apart from some of those moments that were very sort of, you know, like drancy and, and that apartment where it was emotionally quite difficult, the rest of the time we had such a good time. <laughs> the crew were, were all laughing, we were all joking, we were all like having fun. And, you know, I was very focused running around doing what I'm doing, but we have a really good team that everyone was looking after each other. And so it was a really joyous and we have like, we all took loads of photos. We gave Marion a photo book, I've got one, and I will remember it as the most fun shoot I've ever been on I've done lots of shoots and it was just so much fun and so loving and yeah it was great it was really great I couldn't have asked for a better experience really and I think you know Marion had a really lovely time and we still joke now about creme brulee as I'm obsessed with creme brulee and so the first thing she always says to me is like I have not found creme brulee here in Italy you know so we we're looking for cafes and bistros where I could you know I need to eat less creme brulees basically but so it was great it was a great time so I think she loves it. The museum, absolutely delighted with it. And the other two films as well. So we want the other two films to be seen as well at festivals. And our hope is for other museums to be able to take it, you know. Our experience with In Pursuit of Repetitive Beach was a totally different subject matter, totally different sort of VR project, is that we've had a lot of success showing it and touring it around. Well, we want this in a similar way to tour museums so we're trying to actually here in Venice we're trying to make connections with Jewish museums here in Venice in Italy when we go to London it's going to be at the London Film Festival again trying to make those connections because it's one of those things that it needs to be seen and these types of stories need to remain in the consciousness you know when I first went to the Holocaust Museum in Illinois I was aware of the fact that, you know, I know about the Holocaust, of course I do, like everyone does, but do I face the Holocaust? Do I actually look at it head on? And I walked around this museum and I have to say I had to leave quite a lot of times to cry. There were things that I didn't know about, there were images that I remember walking around and seeing an image and it was in the corner of my eye and I, knew, and I, I was like, I, I don't know if I can look at that. It was an image of a death squad. A Nazi soldier shooting a woman in the back in a field and she's carrying a baby and I was just like fuck you know wow and so it's difficult to face it but you have to face it the other thing about the museum is it shows how we all know about the final solution we all know about Auschwitz but the years leading up to it where the where the newspaper articles are all about oh what are we going to do about this Jewish problem oh we would take them in but we can't you know we've got like you know the UK says, oh, we're an island, we don't have enough... You know, it's, it's the same, same stuff. You look at those headlines, you look at the headlines today and you see the same rhetoric and the same excuses. And so it's a timely reminder. And that's the reason that we, as a company, were so like, we have, we have to make these. 
you know, we have to make them now. Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really powerful um, piece that I, uh, I personally find deeply moving and just uh, deeply moved by just hearing you talk about it as well. And uh, yeah, I guess as we, as we start to wrap up, um, I'm, well, first I want to hear what was Marianne's experience of being here at Venice? You know, you said that she was very honored to be here, but what was it like for her to come out to the VR Island here at the part of the Venice Immersive 2023? Well, you know, as you know, getting onto the island is, you know, get anywhere in Venice is hard to get to. You're getting off of boats and stuff like that. So for a 90-year-old woman, there is some challenges there, but she's actually very so sprightly. And she turned up yesterday for our panel looking absolutely fabulous, like, like a style queen. You know, it's just like, people are just like, wow, this, this woman. And she's coming back today. We're having some drinks. She's enjoying it immensely. I mean, we did a panel yesterday and it's lots of creators panels. And she's sitting in the front row. And, you know, I'd already spoken to Liz Rosenthal, the creator, about it. We knew that she was going to be there. I mean, there's no point really in me talking about Marion's story when Marion's sitting there. So quite quickly, you know, Marin stood up and was the star of the show, you know, and that was fantastic. And then, you know, people just want to talk to her. We had a lady who here called Carol, whose mother was born in the same town, Karlsruhe in Germany, needed to speak to her, like people need to talk to her. And I don't know if it's about her or if it's about their own family. It's about their own family that they see in her a connection to their own family, whether they're Jewish or maybe they've lost their parent. So I think her presence here is meaningful for people. It's meaningful for us, and it's a delight for us. She's having a good time. She's with her family. Marin's very independent. She lives in Chicago, but she's actually a European. She lived in Geneva for many years, worked at the World Health Organization. She lived in Paris for many years. So she's a woman of the world. And yeah, so, and she fits in pretty well in Venice, I think. <laughs> Great. And, uh, and finally, what do you think the ultimate potential of virtuality and immersive storytelling might be and what it might be able to enable? I don't know technically where it's going to end up, but I guess I feel like it has the potential to teach us more about ourselves, about the human condition, about nature, about our place in the world. I think it has the ability to connect. It's at that stage where it's hard for people to still see it. You want more people to see the work. You want more people to be affected. But that's the ultimately, I feel like, the gift of it is to take us to those places emotionally and to, even though it's called virtual reality, it's really it's the, it's the magic that is the bit that makes sense. You know, it's taking reality and, and putting magic into it to show truth, I guess. You're searching for truth. Even in a documentary form, you know, documentary is about truth and what happened but I guess that sometimes what happened and truth are not necessarily the same thing and the truth is what we carry forward and so I think ultimately the potential is to connect us more deeply with with each other and ourselves you know to understand ourselves better right sir anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community just that I love them they're cool and it is a great community just being here and you know I've been doing it for eight years and I have to say like I've worked in tv and different things before and I just love this community I love the fact that everyone's supportive of each other everyone's experimenting and that it's a very open 
an inclusive place. And I just, you know, it's a good place to be. Awesome. Well, Darren, uh, Letters from John C. was uh, one of my top experiences that I saw here. Actually, I put it at number one on my list of all the different experiences that I saw here at Venice Immersive, just because not only of all the different techniques and innovations you have, but more than anything else where you're able to take me emotionally um, in this story. Um, And uh, there's uh, I just had put together the the story of my uh, of my mother from Latvia who had her grandparents taken away to Siberia um, for um, one of their prison camps, and um, so I guess there's a. Uh, there's maybe a unconscious part of my reaction to this that I'm uh, right now in this moment, just really uh, connecting with as well. Just that <sighs> the ways of uh, talking about the, the evils of the world. And, uh, this is a, a story that's specific to the Holocaust, but it's a deeper story of how we've related to each other over time in many other different contexts. And I think that people could, find traces of it throughout their own history, their own family tree. So um, I just really was deeply moved by it and I appreciate it very much. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Kenton. I, I'm, I'm so pleased that you've connected to it. I mean, there's not much more to say in a sense, you know, it's like, it's a universal thing, you know, and that's why it's important. It's not us, them, you know, it's everyone. And yeah, I appreciate your honesty and reaction thank you thanks for listening to this interview from venice immersive 2023 you can go check out the critics roundtable in episode 1305 to get more breakdown in each of these different experiences and i hope to be posting more information on my patreon at some point there's a lot to digest here i'm going to be giving some presentations here over the next couple of months and tune into my patreon at patreon.com voices of vr since there's certainly a lot to digest about the structures and patterns of immersive storytelling, some of the different emerging grammar that we're starting to develop, as well as the underlying patterns of experiential design. So that's all I have for today. And thanks for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And again, if you enjoyed the podcast, then please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener-supported podcast, and so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening. Thank you.